Welcome to the Eccles Business Buzz Podcast. My name is Langsha Klingensmith, and today I am joined by Benita Austin, a professor for the Entrepreneurship and Strategy Department here at the David Eccles School of Business. Since joining the Eccles community in 2008, Benita has received numerous accolades for superior teaching and leadership in ethics education. Benita lectures at the undergraduate, master's, and executive education levels, in addition to being heavily involved with the Goth Strategic Leadership Center and Business Scholars. Prior to 2008, Benita was an equity analyst consultant for several hedge funds. She was also a senior vice president for Lehman Brothers and recognized by the Wall Street Journal for earnings estimate accuracy. She has appeared numerous times in prominent business publications like the Wall Street Journal and New York Times. She was also named as an Institutional Investors All-Star All-American Analyst. Benita is beloved by many, including myself, and I can't wait for you to hear more from her. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome her to the Eccles Business Buzz. How are you today, Benita? I'm great. How are you, Lencia? It's so nice to be here. I am doing really well, and I'm just so thrilled that you could join us for the podcast. You know, this season is all based on perseverance, and I'm thrilled that you're here to talk to us more about that. Oh, this is a great topic for the current time as well. So thanks very much for asking me. Yeah, of course. Let's just jump right in. I'd love if you could tell us a little bit more about yourself, your background, and your connection to the Eccles community. Okay, sure. Let me start off with my connection to the Eccles community. So I actually have quite a few. As you mentioned in the introduction, I started teaching here at the University of Utah in the David Eccles School of Business in 2008, and I teach a lot of different kinds of classes. So I teach at a lot of different levels, as you mentioned. So that's my biggest connection. But there are a few other things that I've been very involved with over the years. One of those is the Business Scholars Program. I was lucky enough to be asked to teach in the program the very first year where we had 35 students. I know. What's crazy is that we're probably going to have something like 600. I shouldn't promise because I'm not doing the (laughs) recruiting, but I think we're going to have something like 600 students next year. And so the program has grown incredibly and it's a really neat program to be involved in. And about a year ago, I became a director for this and I'm now the academic director for the program. So I've got that connection to the Eccles community with, it's just really a lot of fun. In addition to that, as you mentioned, I am part of the Golf Strategic Leadership Center, and I helped to create the golf program. So it used to be called Golf Fellows because you were one of them. So that program is now about five years old, which is crazy. So I created the curriculum for that, and I teach that class. And it's really a lot more than a class. As you know, it's a program, and it is uh, scholarshiped by the Golf Strategic Leadership Center through the amazing generosity of one of our alumni, Greg Goff. And it's really a transformative type of program. And then I work closely with executive education also. So I get an opportunity to get connected to business leaders and managers all over our area. So I've got a lot of connections to the Eccles community. And in terms of my background, you mentioned that I was a securities analyst for a number of years. I also worked for hedge funds independently after I left Wall Street. So I guess just to kind of back up, I am a country girl from, I'm really from Florida. I usually say I'm a country girl from Alabama because I went to University of Alabama for my MBA, but I grew up in Central Florida. And I went to school at Troy University as an undergrad. And then I went to University of Alabama for an MBA. And my first job out of school, I worked for Kimberly Clark in a factory as a cost analyst, which was a really great foundation because I worked there for a year. And then I went to work on Wall Street as a junior analyst. I became a senior analyst and was involved in Wall Street for a long time. And then when I got pregnant with my daughter, I decided with my husband, we decided that it's time for me to drop out because it's a high stress job and it requires a lot of hours. And I thought it was not going to be very conducive for me to do it, to be a good mom. And so I stay at home with my daughter and then I had another child, my son. So I stay at home with my kids about 13 years and work for some hedge funds as a consultant while I was staying at home with my kids. And then I made this career move in 2008. So I think that pretty much catches you up with my background. So why Utah? What made you interested in Utah and coming out here? So this is maybe just a little bit convoluted, but there's two different reasons why I was interested in Utah. The first reason is 
back a long time ago. So my daughter's 24 now. So when I got pregnant with my daughter, my husband and I were thinking about, we were living in New Jersey. And I mean, I love New Jersey and I had a beautiful house there, but it's the kind of lifestyle you need to be working and you need to be working on Wall Street to be able to maintain it. And so when we started thinking about dropping out, we considered moving out West at the time. We just didn't think it was the right decision because we'd be so far away from our families. And then when I started thinking about changing careers and coming back to work, I compete in horseback field trials. And so I have a Vichelis and I ride horses to do it. And this is just such a great place for outdoor activities. I remember the first time I came out here and I walked, I, I hiked up to the top of a low mountain and I looked out and there was nothing. There were no fences. There were no houses. It was all just empty land and it's all publicly owned out here. And I just fell in love with it. I'll never get tired of the scenery out here. It's so beautiful out here. And coming from the South to come out here, the two places are not exactly the same, but the level <laughs> of politeness and just general friendliness is here as well, like it was in the Southeast. So just automatically felt like this would be a great place for me to live. And I had young children also, and there's a yeah. ton of kids out here, which is awesome. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned your horses and you mentioned your Vishlas. How many pups do you have and how many horses do you have right now? So I have seven dogs. So six of them are Vishlas and one is a pointer and she is okay. an English pointer. She's an old lady and she is just the cutest dog ever. She's like a little oh. circuits dog. And they're all related to my heart dog of all time, Trouble, who passed away a couple years ago. She and I won the NBA National All Age a lot of other field trials. She was just an incredible dog. Everybody I have except Diva is related to trouble. So that's nice. Wow. And then I have three horses. Yeah. So I got three horses. I run the dogs off the horses. So I have two Tennessee walkers and a Missouri Fox trotter, kind of a menagerie. And we also have a couple cats that we picked up because they were strays and you know, they're not over there right now, but they're usually sleeping on my bed or something. So yeah, it's a little bit of a zoo out here. You had lots of company during the pandemic, right? Yeah, that's right. And also... <laughs> I was already having that mom, you don't know, because you're too young, but <laughs> my son graduated from high school last spring, which was a really tough time. And I know all the parents out there, I feel for everybody who was trying to do K through 12 with their kids last year it was so hard. For the seniors, it was tough because all of their kind of fun things, other than your senior homecoming, which happened in the fall, it just was not there. And so here's the silver lining though. My son did not go away to college. So he stayed at home last year. So I got to spend a lot yeah. of time with him because I was already like pre-missing him <laughs> before yeah. he went anywhere. So he stayed at home, did online classes last time. So last year that put off that transfer. And I'm sorry to say he's going to go to Utah State. I know, it, but I've heard nothing but great stuff and it's beautiful oh, up absolutely. there. And the degree well, and he it's wants, better than the offer. school down south. Oh, yeah, we, yeah, we wouldn't go there. We'll yeah, take so it. He, we'll take it. Oh, that's yeah, fantastic. So. Well, wish him congratulations. It has been a really tough year for students. I think it especially students who were seniors in high school and then made that transition to freshmen this past year. And you've kind of seen that firsthand as a professor. What has that been like? How have you seen students persevere? And what was it like to make that transition into online learning so quickly? I think that this was probably the hardest time in decades, maybe ever, for students to transition, especially from high school to being a freshman in college. When we talk about going to college or going to university in the United States, it includes, of course, academics, but there are a lot of other things that go along with college that we just simply couldn't offer last year. And there's a big yeah. transition anyway, because it, it, college is just a lot harder than high school. And that's just the bottom line. And you don't have your parents standing there saying, hey, Lyncha, you've got to complete this assignment by this date. You may, got to make sure you get it done and then make sure that you look over, make sure you did get it done. You study for a test. You're just on yeah. your own. And so yeah. one of the things that we do and we did last year as well from the Business Scholars Program, every student has a mentor, has a student mentor that's already gone through that transition. And I think that helps. But last year was especially tough because... Not in the business college program. We taught that in person as much as we could. We had more online lessons than we would ever have in a normal year, but we taught almost the whole program in person. But the other classes, 
those were online classes. And I absolutely know that everybody that taught classes last year tried their hardest to make it into a good experience for students. But I feel like it's more difficult for younger people to learn online than it is for adults. And I think the reason for that is partially just the familiarity with doing things online. So when you think about how businesses run their teams now, a lot of people are on virtual teams. And so I've known people who were maybe in that work for the auto companies, for example, that were located in Detroit, and they had a virtual team with team members literally scattered over every continent in the world. And they worked together and they really collaborated effectively. When you've got that kind of experience, it's not as bad as you've never experienced anything like an online class if you're an 18-year-old and just came out of high school until this year, I guess, they had to adapt to it as well. So I think that was really hard for students. I also think that it is very natural to be homesick when you go to college And the things that kind of get you through that are your connections to your professors, to your, if you live in the dorms, to your resident advisors, to the students that you live with in the dorms, to the students that you're in class with. And those connections were a lot harder to make last year. And we definitely had many students that suffered from depression, anxiety, and just difficulty in understanding how to engage in their classes. I'm happy to say that most students made it through the experience intact and did okay as far as their classes went and started figuring out new ways to connect to people. I think the one thing that is good is that students for the last, I don't know, decade or so have used social media so much that they have large networks of online communities and that helps a little bit. But unfortunately, a lot of students that would ordinarily just be going to school had to work part-time. I've heard some stories about students whose parents were all of a sudden furloughed and then maybe laid off. And so everybody in the family had to find part-time jobs just to be able to pay their bills. So it was a tough year. It really was. And I'm really appreciative of the students who were able to just stick it out. And also the ones that were willing to say, hey, I'm struggling. Can you help me? Because we did not just in the business scholars program, but in the whole business college and in the university, we had a lot of resources available to help students. And I know sometimes students think that their professors don't care about them, but that's just not true. So the students who reached out for help, I think it's a hard thing to do, but I think it was brave. And I think that benefited them too. Absolutely. I know I'm looking forward to seeing that serendipitous nature of campus come back alive the opportunity to bump into a classmate or make those connections just throughout your day as you go through that experience that we lost and are hard to have those random touch points. I agree. And I think it's also difficult. It's more difficult to develop deep relationships with anyone. And this is the only time that I've ever taught where I really did not know very many of my students. And as a professor, Honestly, that takes the joy out of teaching if you don't get to work with the students. So I was lucky enough to have a couple of classes in person. The Golf Scholars class, of course, was in person and they are just terrific. So awesome to work with. And the Business Scholars program was in person. And so I did know some of those students and that includes the Transfer Scholars. But in my strategy classes, I only got to know a few students and that is tough because you just don't have those connections that you usually have. But I think we'll see that turn around pretty quickly. Yeah. What does fall look like for you? Are you going to be back on campus mainly or still kind of a hybrid? Yes, I am. So no, I'm going to be mostly on campus. I have one online class, but I'll be teaching golf scholars again in the fall. That's always going to be in person. And I'm teaching the business scholars program and our business scholars program will be not only in person, but we will be able to travel next year, which will be awesome. So exciting. Yeah, that is really exciting because those are the trips where The students bond with each other over those trips. And that's where they get to know you as a professor outside of class as well, which is really cool. So I think fall is going to look great. I'm very optimistic about it. We've done such a terrific job in our state of rolling out the vaccine and getting people vaccinated quickly. And of course, we're lucky because we're part of the university community and our university hospital is one of the very best in the world. And we have all this great research going on over in health sciences. I'm pretty optimistic. You mentioned the Goff Fellows and the Goff Strategic Leadership Center. 
So many students who go through that program, who are involved with that center, their affinity for that program is because of you and your dedication to helping them succeed. And you mentioned like students recognizing that their professors really do care about them. And I think anybody who's ever had a class with you knows that to be true. Can you tell me more about that program and what it's been like to really develop that curriculum and how you've seen it evolve? Yeah, it is a really cool program. And alumni, if you work for an organization and you have a strategic challenge, if you would please go to the Golf Strategic Leadership website, you can submit a suggestion for a project and we'll follow up with you. So the way the program started, started really small. And we initially, we only had business students in the program, which was great. But I always wanted to include other people outside the business college in the in the program. And our benefactor, Greg Goff, has been involved as well, especially early on, was really involved in kind of shaping how we wanted to do the program. And he always wanted to have people, especially in engineering. For those of you who don't know about Greg, he's retired now, but he was the chairman and CEO of Tesoro, which, of course, we have a Tesoro refinery here. And they changed their name to Endeavor. And then a couple of years ago, were acquired by Marathon, where he was the co-chairman. And that's the number five oil company in the world. So Greg has all this really deep management experience. He's a terrific leader. He was an amazing CEO. Now he's, as I mentioned, retired. But one of the things that I picked up from Greg early on is how much he wanted to help, especially young people. I think he's way more interested in helping high school undergraduates, even graduate students develop their strategic leadership skills. He thinks there's a great opportunity to work with young people and across disciplines. So we changed the program after the first two years to include people from students from all over the university, no matter what your major is. All the students are high performers. You have to have a minimum GPA of 3.5. So you have to be a good student to get into the program. And what's happened that's so exciting is that Students from all kinds of majors, physics, economics, which is not in the business school in our university, but so like physics, economics, philosophy, international studies, political science, psychology. We have a really neat multidisciplinary design program. We've had students from that program. We've had biomedical engineering. And that's in addition to having representation from every major in the business college. So the students work with students that have completely different academic backgrounds than they have. And so what we do is we ask our community partners through the corporate outreach program, which is headed up by Assistant Dean Katie Abbey. They've been fantastic. Katie and her staff talk to hundreds, maybe thousands of companies, and they find some strategic challenges for us. So students work on projects on their own teams and One of the things that's so unique about the program, besides the interdisciplinary type of approach, is that students honestly do everything. I don't do anything. I don't do anything with the projects, nothing. All I do is ask the, I know sometimes they think the mean questions. (laughs) The hard questions. The hard questions. (laughs) I ask the questions, they provide the answers. So one of the things that's so cool about it is that the very first year of the program, in the first couple weeks of the program, I worked with the students to come up with a structure for it, and we still use that structure. And it's a structure that was devised by the first class of golf fellows. We have all these teams, and the team will work on the entire project, and they will have a team leader that we call project manager. Then every team will present in class, and I will ask questions, and I have a golf fellow or golf scholar from the year before as a TA. We'll ask them questions. Sometimes Katie Abbey will come in, which is awesome. Or I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Richie Watson. She's the managing director for the Strategic Leadership Center. So they come in, they ask hard questions too. It's not just me. So we'll get a presentation class and then the project managers will take all of the projects that were done by the whole class and they will decide which of these approaches is the best approach for the client, whatever the organization is that we're working with. They will work on that project. They only get a week to do it. And then they present to the management. It's maybe founders, CEO, top management of whatever organization it is that we're working with. And the class is there to support them, which is one of the neatest things about the program. 
So you might remember this from when you did your presentations, but sometimes people will ask a question and the project managers know somebody out there in the class knows more about that thing than they do. And so they're allowed to tap into that person, which is really neat. So the whole class is very supportive. But then the next time you do a project, you're on a different team with a different project manager. Every student gets to lead a team throughout the year. So that's the structure of the program. It's really neat. I think it's very, it's a very rigorous program. And I think it's a transformative experience for a lot of students. Our placement has been terrific. When you come out of the golf scholars program, you will be a good strategic thinker. Even if you came in and didn't know anything about how to think strategically or how to make strategic decisions, when you get finished, you will know how to do it. And you will have also developed such a great network of not just classmates, but close friends. Because, you know, trial by fire, basically. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So we have a great alumni network and there are a lot of opportunities for anybody in the Eccles community to start getting involved in the Strategic Leadership Center. So I think it's a terrific program. And I've just had so many wonderful students that have gone on to do amazing things, even in the short time we've had the program. We are going to take a quick break from Benita's episode and all the wonderful things that she has to share with us to speak with Ruchi Watson. Ruchi is the Managing Director of the Goff Strategic Leadership Center and is just incredible. The Goff Strategic Leadership Center has so many ways that our alumni, students, and community members can get engaged and plug back into all the fantastic opportunities they have to offer. I'm happy to introduce Ruchi to have her tell you more information. Thanks, Langsha. You know, at Golf, our vision is simple, to help people be more successful, and that means you. Engage with Golf by signing up to be a business coach, sponsoring a project for Golf students, or attending our first ever strategic leadership conference this fall. You can find us online at eccles.link forward slash Golf, G-O-F-F, or on social media at Goff SLC. Thanks so much, Ruchi. Alums, students, to all of our listeners, please go to eccles.link slash Goff for more information and be sure to follow them on social. It's been so incredible to see how it's evolved pretty quickly and the companies and the organizations that these students are really, truly helping and impacting in a very positive way is just so inspiring. Well, I think also what has changed about the program somewhat, because I've realized how much students enjoy it, we mix up working for profit organizations and nonprofit organizations. That's a great opportunity to work closely, not only with the companies that have done such a wonderful job of supporting the David Eccles School of Business. We've done a lot of work with companies that are really tightly affiliated with the college, which we love doing. But we also have worked on some nonprofits. And I think we have made a pretty big impact. And it's neat because people think, oh, it's a bunch of kids. They're all undergrads. But they're so smart, so creative, such hard workers that they always come up with something amazing. I've literally never been disappointed. They've done a great job over the years. It's really, really cool. That's awesome. And I have to ask, what's been the coolest project that you've seen the students work on and develop solutions for? So the, well, we've had a lot of really neat, we've had a (laughs) lot of really neat projects. (laughs) But the one that I think was by far the most difficult, most complex project that was just inherently cool. And this is a shout out to the class of 20. So that they would have graduated in spring of 20 or some of them still had one more year of school, but that was the last piece of the program. We did a project for the El Mirador project, which is down in Guatemala. And it's an amazing place. So it's the largest Mayan civilization It's about 1.8 million acres. Most of it's in Guatemala. Some of it's over in Mexico. And in addition to being a very important archaeological site, it is a really diverse place in terms of biodiversity. So like they found, I can't remember, like 18 new species of butterfly or something like that. Oh my goodness. So they have more jaguars like per square mile there than any other place in the world. So it's this big jungle. And these ruins are just out in the middle of the jungle. So the problem they're facing is that 
narcotics trafficking has really encroached on the jungle. And so there's been a lot of cutting down trees, burning the forest, putting in cow pastures. I don't know that much about this end of it, but apparently that's an easy way to launder money. And so there's a lot of pressure on this really precious resource. And so what the students figured out is how to create a highly differentiated premium tourist attraction to protect that area and the constraints they were working on. No roads, zero. The biggest pyramid there, which is the largest one in the world, 50 miles into the jungle. So no roads, no electricity, no water, no sewage treatment, no place, no facilities of any kind. And they figured out how to create this incredible experience that had a minimal negative impact on the environment and has the potential to stimulate the Guatemalan economy by a couple billion dollars. So it's really cool. And just the innovative solutions they came up with solar and getting water into the place. And my favorite is transporting people in to the area, not with cars, not with buses, but on, there's a place in Australia that uses this sky rail type of thing. And so it's like a huge gondola. It's like bigger than a ski lift. Do you know these huge gondolas that are really high up in the air? They're above the forest canopy. And then the other thing that was so awesome about the project is that they also worked on figuring out how to have the local people be the ones that are in charge of this area and benefit from the area and give the local people the things that they need. They need better health care. They want more opportunities. They want better education for their children. They need better internet. So all of those things were incorporated into the project along with marketing, a brand book, and a structure for the organization. 10 years worth of financial projections. It was just incredible. And then that was presented not by us, but it was presented by the project owner to the president of Guatemala. And so we're hoping that maybe as we come through the pandemic, when we get out of it and people recover, maybe they'll start putting this into place. And that's really cool, high profile, big impact project. But they've done other projects that would impact our local community so much. The same year we did a project for Wild Utah, which is rebuilding wetlands in Utah, putting in beaver dams. And it's a real low tech solution to a big problem. So we've done all kinds of neat things. The sky's the limit. The sky is the limit. I'd like to pivot a little bit. This second season of the podcast is all about perseverance. And I've recorded a few episodes and we've been working on this season. I've been asking everybody what it means to them to persevere. Everybody, because of their own experiences, has a little bit different definition. So I'd love to hear from you. What does it mean to you to persevere? So when I think about perseverance, I think that equals in my own head, not quitting. But in addition to not quitting, it means figuring out how to achieve whatever it is you're trying to achieve. And I think that's a really important component to persevering because if you just want to use basic analogy, I could keep beating my head against the wall and I'll keep getting a headache if I keep doing that. Yeah, I think that is the strategy way to think about things. That's funny, but I think that's true. What has been one of the biggest obstacles that you've had to persevere through in either your life or your career? So I think as far as a career goes, there are a couple things. I think that if you go back to my parents' generation, when you graduated from college or you graduated from graduate school and you went to work for a company, you're going to be with that company. They're going to take care of you. You're going to be a part of their company or you're going to be part of their organization for your whole life. And that changed really radically. My generation has not experienced that. And it's even less like that for your generation and the generation that comes behind. And so when I think about, I stay in touch a little bit with some of the people I went to business school with. And when I think about all the changes that we've all made in our careers, every person I know that I went to school with and the people that I worked with in different organizations, we've all made multiple career changes. And I think that can be, on the one hand, can be really challenging and difficult to do, especially if it's involuntary. You know, there's been so many restructurings and layoffs over the last few decades that sometimes you might start off working in, I don't know, telecom and then end up in maybe healthcare or something. 
So I think that is really challenging. I've made a couple pivots in my career, but it was a little bit different. I made those pivots because I wanted to. And so it's easier when you have control because that's what you wanted to do. So I think that, I think that's been a challenge for my generation. I think in terms of the things that have been difficult to deal with, unfortunately, I don't think they're any different today for anyone, but there's a very strong gender bias still in the United States. I've worked in male-dominated fields, and I think that is quite challenging. It's quite challenging to figure out how to navigate that landscape, especially because, and here is my women's liver part coming out. You know what? I don't (laughs) want to be like a man. I don't want to be. I want to be my own self. I want to be my own authentic person. And I don't want to have to copy what men do to be successful. And nothing against them. That's people have different paths to success. But I don't want to be required to do anything just because of my gender. And I also want to say that this may not be in line with what other career women tell you. But I also really strongly believe that the women's liberation movement is about me doing what I want to do, not what you tell me to do. So that means I stayed at home with my children for 13 years. And that's what I wanted to do. And so you can tell I'm a little bit passionate about this, but I don't like people judging me because I stay at home with my kids because I could have kept working on Wall Street. Sure, no problem. And I would be a lot richer if I had, but (laughs) I wanted to stay at home with my children. And and a bunch of my girlfriends did not make that same choice. And that's great. They wanted to keep working. They want to work in journalism or they want to continue to work on Wall Street. That's great. That's their choice. Those things I think are really important, but I think that it's difficult to fight that gender bias all the time. And I think it's harder to fight the combination of gender bias and racism, which I don't have to worry about the racism part for myself, but I think it's harder for people of color. And I think women of color have a really difficult time. And that's probably the hardest thing you have to figure out is how you're going to get ahead, given that's the way society is. So what are we going to do to get around that, over it, under it, whatever it is? That's what has been challenging, I think, is to figure out how do you work in a male-dominated industry and in a male-dominated firm? One thing that was very good for me is that I worked for Lehman Brothers. And under Jack Rivkin, he passed away a few years ago, but he was famous for being the first person to be gender-blind in hiring on Wall Street. And he recruited such an amazing group of women analysts. And that was an overlooked kind of talent pool. And I believe that gave us a competitive advantage in the market. And I had the pleasure of working with many very famous analysts that were incredibly fun to work with, great people, super smart, and just excellent stock pickers. So I was lucky in part of my career, I got to work at Lehman Brothers and it was really a neat place to work. So I think that's been pretty difficult. I think it's been difficult to pivot And I think it's been difficult to overcome gender bias. And I have a lot of hope, though, because when I look at students, they just don't have the same kind of inherent biases that people have. Like when I was in college, things have definitely improved from my perspective. When I see how the young men in my classes work so well with the young women in the classes, I just think, yeah, we're definitely on the right path. And that's pretty cool. But those things are hard to overcome. I think in my personal life, it was very hard to leave a high profile career to stay at home with my kids. And every parent out there, man or woman that has done the same thing knows what I'm talking about. It's hard to go from, if I say something, it appears in the Wall Street Journal or the stock prices move to just kind of staying at home and taking care of the baby and going to the park and doing all the stuff you do with young children. That is a hard mental adjustment to make. It was actually easier to come back to work than it was to drop out of work. But again, I feel so strongly that you should be given that opportunity to make that choice, whether you're a man or a woman, hopefully you can financially make that choice. Yeah, you mentioned how difficult that transition was. What was that transition like? You know, how did you successfully navigate that day to day when you were like you said, used to saying something and appearing in the Wall Street Journal or having all these what seemed like big impacts to surely having huge, if not even bigger impacts within your own home. What was that like? I think honestly, it's very difficult. What I did to get over that transition, I didn't do this right away. I did it after my daughter was about a year older, but I basically kept my hand in. I did consulting for some hedge funds and I had a blast doing that. I didn't 
make very much money, kept me involved in the stock market. And I eventually worked for the same hedge fund for a long time. And one of the partners there, Steve Balog, had been my director of research at Lehman Brothers. And so I had known him for a long time. And so Steve and Stephen, his partner, had a hedge fund that was a value investing hedge fund, which probably sounds a little contradictory. But I, <laughs> even though I follow a lot of growth stocks, I'm really a value investor. And so I enjoyed working for them. And that kept me really in the flow of what was going on, at least a little bit. It's not the same thing as going to the morning meeting where there are 150 institutional salespeople sitting there and hearing what everybody's saying that's going on that day. It's not the same thing, but it did keep me involved. And I think that's a way that you can keep, if you're struggling and you've decided, hey, I'm going to make this change, that's a way that you can overcome some of it. And then I did some other stuff. I picked up some new hobbies and I made some new friends and that definitely helped as well. But it was really that still connection to my old job in the sense that I was still analyzing companies and I was still doing earnings estimates and I was still giving them my recommendations on whether they should buy a stock or sell it. Was this a good short? Hedge funds can do anything, which is awesome. I love, I loved working <laughs> for a hedge fund. That's really fun. So that's how I went through it. I just, I worked with my friends over there at Cedar Creek Partners. They've closed their hedge fund a few years ago and retired, but I worked with them and that was, that's really what kept me going and kept a little bit of a touch point back to my old life before I had kids. And then I just got a lot of pleasure out of doing stuff with my children too. I sadly am craft impaired. I cannot really do crafts, (laughs) but I had to learn some stuff like that. And I did get to spend a long time where I didn't have a lot of work pressure, which was great. And I got to have a lot of recreation time and just play with the kids and be outdoors. And that's that kind of stuff is really rewarding. But the intellectual part of it, and then just everybody knows that stays at home with their kids. It's unless you can build up a social network, you're going to feel pretty isolated. And so I did work on that too. Yeah, that's awesome. And you also mentioned the difficulty of being a female analyst and working in a male-dominated industry. How did you persevere through that? I imagine there were some days that it just, you know, felt isolating sometimes in that industry? What did you do to keep your motivation? So I did a couple things. The first thing I did was I accidentally picked a great firm to work with to start with. I didn't know anything about the different firms, but I was hired to be a junior analyst by really a legendary analyst, Emma Hill. And I worked with her and I worked for a firm that's not around anymore. It's gone through some M&A and it's just not around anymore, but it was called Wertheim Schroeder. And it was the first firm on Wall Street to have a woman partner. The thing that is so awesome about Wall Street is at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter who you are or what you do. On the equity analyst side, if you're a good analyst, if you make money for people, you're good. And so it's more of a matter of dealing with not your clients so much, they're really interested in what can you do to help them reach their investment goals for their clients. So big money managers, they need to try to beat the stock market. They want to know what you know that can help them do that. And so I think that that definitely helps that you have that kind of environment. But I would also say, I don't know that I'm very good at this and, and nobody teaches you how to do it either. There's a lot of sexual harassment that goes on. And it is really hard to know what to do about it. Especially in the moment. In the moment when people make comments to you, it's really hard to deal with it. My approach, I don't know if it's a good one or not. I was honestly, a lot of the times, what I would call myself is the ice queen. I just wasn't that friendly. I could be friendly. If you're a friend of mine, I could be friendly. And I was certainly nice to people. But I never let myself get very close to people that were not analysts. So I had a lot of close friends that were analysts. But the thing that you have to be really careful about, and I don't think it's any different today, is that you have to be very careful about your reputation. As a woman analyst, you have to be really careful. I had a couple of (laughs) really bad experiences when I was a young analyst that I was kind of honestly flabbergasted. I didn't know what to do. And again, I don't know that I'm that great at navigating stuff. I think now it's a lot easier for me. And so 
I think as you go through life, you get experience dealing with stuff like that. That's the hardest thing I think to deal with. Yeah. Did you have a mentor or uh, yeah, I did a, somebody actually. that you could approach with those things or work through that with? So I had a mentor in terms of being an analyst and doing a good job as an analyst. And that was the woman that I worked with originally, Emma Hill. I actually never talked to anybody except for some of my analyst friends about things like that. So I think it's good advice to find a mentor. I really, I don't know if it's the environment. I don't know if it's my personality, but I never ask anybody for help with stuff like that. And I, you know, I think it's a good idea, but I never did that. I just talked to people about how to be a better analyst. How can I do a better job making financial projections? How do I understand the strategy of this company? What is it that investors are looking for? How do you tell a story to investors? I talk to people about that kind of stuff all the time, job performance related stuff. But again, I was really fortunate because two of the firms I work for had very strong women involved in the organization and they were highly valued. You know, in addition to Emma Hill in my first firm, Elizabeth Peake was the oil analyst and she was the first woman on Wall Street to be a partner in a firm. And so those two women, they're both, they were great stock pickers. And so those two women were really looked up to. So that makes that easier. And then when I went to work for Lehman, the whole core of the analysts, we had 10 number one rated analysts and nine of them were women. So, I mean, by Wall Street standards. Yeah. Yeah. And everybody was young too. So that was pretty cool. So I was lucky there in that sense that I worked in environments that were predisposed to be good environments. So I think that definitely helped. We are going to take just a quick break from the episode for a special message to all of our Eccles students that may be listening right now. There is still time to apply for the next year's Goff Strategic Leadership courses. You can earn credit and gain hands-on experience by working with real companies on real projects. Plus, there's a scholarship. Yep, you heard that right. There is no reason you should not be applying for these opportunities. I participated in several soft strategic leadership courses throughout my undergrad, and I can tell you they were some of the best parts of my Eccles experience. From the leadership experience that you're going to get, the friendships that you'll form, and the knowledge that you'll be able to apply, not only the internships, but also as you begin your career. For more information and to apply, visit echols.link forward slash goth. That's echols.link forward slash G-O-F-F. Applications close on June 30th, so make sure you get those in quick. All right, we'll get back to the episode. Yeah. When you were graduating and looking to move into that industry, were you nervous because it was male dominated? Were you just ready to tackle it? What did that feel like? No, actually. Well, first of all, I didn't know that I wanted to be in that industry. So the first job I took out of graduate school was working for Kimberly Clark, which was a great experience. And then I decided that I wanted to work on Wall Street. And so I honestly never even considered it because you got to remember how I have to bring this up. Sorry. I am so much older than you, Lynchia, that <laughs> like every industry was male dominated. Maybe Wall Street yeah. was worse, but like everything was male dominated when I came out of graduate school. And so I just didn't think about it really. I never said, oh, I don't want to be in this business because of this and maybe just misplaced confidence. I just <laughs> never felt like it was going to keep me from doing what I wanted to do. I just never thought about it. And the other thing about Wall Street that is different than most industries is that it is relatively easy to have objective standards that tell you whether you're doing a good job or not. And there's a lot of mobility too. So if you work for a firm and you feel like you're being underpaid, it's, you have a lot of mobility if you're good at your job. If you were speaking to a young woman looking to go into a male-dominated industry, is that your advice to her? Just go for it? Depends on how much she wants to do it and what else she wants to do. I am not very sold on investment banking as a career for women or for men. And the reason I'm not is because I know how many hours you have to work. And you do have a lot of upside in terms of your income. And you just got to decide what's important to you. 
So if you, I will get, I give the same advice to my young men students that I do to the young women students. Personally, I wouldn't do investment banking because I don't want to work 120 hours a week ever. I don't want to work 100 oh hours gosh. a week ever. And as a young person in the business, you're basically a grunt. You might do some financial modeling and stuff like that, but you're going to work a ton of hours. And there's been some well-publicized incidents over the last few years. And there's been a lot of talk about how bad the culture is, but that's not being an equity analyst. That's different. I think if you're that good at financial stuff, why don't you check out some of the rotational programs that some of the big companies like Microsoft have. We've placed a number of students in Microsoft's financial rotation program, and it's amazing. It's a great program. People are well-paid. They have really fulfilling jobs. They do interesting work. And they aren't working 100 hours a week. They're working more of a normal kind of work schedule. So if you want to have some work-life balance, you need to think about what's required to get ahead in the business. And I'd say that about consulting too. If you're going to go into consulting, you need to consider how long you want to do it, what the end game is for you, and whether that work-life balance is important at this particular point in your life. It may not be. And if it's not, and you can put in a couple of years where you work a ton and you learn a lot of stuff, and then you go back and maybe you get a master's degree and you pivot into another industry, it's great experience, but you will be working a ton. So I don't really think about it in the sense of some industries are still really male dominated. I don't think about it that way so much as I think about what is it that the job is going to require of you? And is that what you're willing to give to that job or not? It can be hard to push through, even if, okay, I'm going to do this for a couple years and learn a ton, it could still just really take a toll on you to be working so many hours. And, you know, we learned through the pandemic, the importance of kind of community and being around people. And when you're working so much, you it don't could, have it that. could take a toll on you. It, yeah, you don't have that. So yeah, it all depends on what you want. So you want to be the CEO of a company. Okay, that's great. You could start your own. Or if you're going to work for somebody else, that's a great ambition. You just need to understand what it's going to take to get there. And that's me. If I came out of school now, I'd be that one. I wouldn't be the one who's thinking, oh, I want to be part of the community and have work-life balance. I probably wouldn't be thinking that. I'd be thinking more along the lines of what's the upside for me? Where can I go? What is the, I hate being bored. And that's one of the really fun (laughs) things about teaching. I don't get bored at all. Every job has some elements you don't like, but So that's me grading papers. No professors like grading papers. And there were some aspects of working on Wall Street that I didn't enjoy either. No job is absolutely 100% perfect. But having said that, I'd probably be erring on the side of, I want to have a lot of upward mobility and I want to do really challenging work. And so I probably in my, I know I never thought one second when I was in my 20s about what is, what trade-offs am I making? But I'm not saying that's the right way to be. I'm just saying that's me. And I think when I look at my children, it is less them. I don't think my son's going to work for somebody else. I really don't. I think he's going to start his own business and he's willing to work as hard as it takes to have his own thing. And I think it just depends on what you want, which industry you should go into. I do think that it's a mistake. If you want to have a lot of upward mobility, it's a mistake to go to a company that is not growing because you don't have much upside. But other than that, I don't think it really matters where you go. Yeah. Everybody has to persevere through their own path to really find that success. Well, you have to decide what you what that means to you too. That's the thing. I don't think success means the same thing to the current generation of students or your generation of students that it meant to, to my generation when I was in school. We had a totally different way of looking at things. And I don't think my generation looked at everything correctly. I think we've all worked very hard and we're getting towards the end of our careers. And a lot of people have accumulated a lot of material things that are great. But now I think sometimes people are looking back and saying, wait a minute, you know, you kind of have two sorts of people look at millennials and say, oh, they're lazy. They don't want to do anything. They want all these privileges. And that's one way you could look at it. Or you could look at it as maybe they're really onto something because (laughs) all the job satisfaction in the world is not the same thing as getting satisfaction outside of at work. And if that's what's important to you, then you should work on having that work-life balance rather than just following what your parents did or what your grandparents did. Yeah. It's so interesting to see things shifting. Yeah, things are shifting. And I think 
I'm relatively optimistic. I think things could improve. I mean, we could go either way, obviously, but I think things could improve a lot. And some things are better. People, as horrible as the pandemic has been, maybe we can learn some good lessons from it and make things better in the future for people. If we took this as an opportunity to rethink how we want to run our organizations and what it means to be successful in a career and how we hire people and how we promote people and whether they come into the office or they work at home, it'd be great if we rethink those things. And I think that a lot of organizations are rethinking some of those things. And if you kind of think back over history, when you do have a big crisis, it does tend to cause people to think about whether things should be different or not in the future. That's not unique to this crisis. Absolutely. Well, as we wrap up here, I have one more question for you. I've been asking all my guests on the podcast. I just think it's so interesting. I love to hear your book recommendation. Just one book, either a book that you're reading now, you've read in the past, just one that you would recommend. So I teach change management to the graduate students, which I love teaching it. It's a really rewarding experience. I love to hear what's going on in different organizations and what people have experienced. And I recently read a book called Tiny Habits by BJ Fogg. He's a professor at Stanford. And I actually, I love it. I don't usually go for kind of self-help books, but one of the things that is so difficult when you think about managing change in organizations is how you can help other people change or how you could change yourself because you go through a big restructuring or something and all of a sudden you've got a whole new set of job responsibilities and you're supposed to get rid of the way you used to do things and adopt these new things. That's hard for people. And so BJ Fogg has written this book about how you can make changes and you can do it in your personal life. You can do it at work. And I just think it's a great way to approach that problem of how do you help people change that work for you and how do you change yourself, which is often more challenging. And I actually would recommend the audiobook because his own story is so powerful and he tells it on the audiobook and not in the written book. Awesome. Well thank you for sharing it with me. I'll add it to my list and we'll make sure to put it in the show notes so all of the listeners can find it too. Okay, great. Thank you so much. It has just been such a pleasure to hear from you and to catch up after a year and a half of kind of craziness. But I'm so appreciative of you sharing your stories of perseverance and your advice for alums and students and all about the Goth program as well. Thanks very much for having me. I enjoyed chatting with you. It's been so fun and I'll talk to you soon, hopefully. Great. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Eccles Business Buzz podcast. If you enjoyed the show today, please subscribe using your favorite podcast player and be sure to give us a rating and review. You could check out more of our content at eccles.link slash business buzz. Until next time, go Utes.